The American landscape is really breathtaking. Uh, America has been kind of known for her Midwestern plains, uh, two extended coastlines, the Rockies and the Appalachian Mountains, uh, along with all the Great Lakes that scattered across the Midwest. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, an avid outdoorsman himself, helped to preserve our land by establishing the National Park Service. Actually, many years before him, Ulysses S. Grant actually signed the law of the first national park, which would be Yellowstone. This past year, the national parks almost had 80 million visitors, different parks that spread across our shores. And today, I think there's even a greater interest uh, in protecting America's landscape over overdevelopment and pollution. Uh, America wants her precious land to be preserved for future generations. If you've ever had the privilege to drive from coast to coast, you get to enter a lot of different small villages. Uh, if, you, if you look in a city, there's the sky space is limited, so buildings or cities tend to go upward. But when you cross our nations and you hit all these different small villages and towns, you see a very different landscape or different, different sky, a skyline than large buildings. What you see is you see crosses. You see crosses that scattered along our, 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 um, these different towns. Because in those days, when the earlier settlers came to uh, America, what they would do is they would build churches and they would build large steeples, like the one we have here. And on the top of the steeple, they would have a cross because they would want to draw everyone's eyes towards heaven. And they wanted a picture that, that God is over this town. My wife always laughs at me because when we drive... Uh, I have a thing for church buildings, so as soon as I see a church building, my head kind of turns and um, she always chuckles because I, I love them. Um, when we think about this, this heritage that we have, how do we preserve that heritage uh, when we want Christ to kind of be over everything? Several years ago, uh, China's government started to de-Christianize the skyline of one of their cities called Wenzhou. It was known as China's... Jerusalem. Uh, the government did not want crosses on top of the skyline. They forcibly removed 400 crosses as a clear symbol that this nation is not driven by, by Christ, but by secularism. Now, we know that America has not forcibly removed crosses from churches yet, uh, but they simply have marginalized it. The driving force of American culture is the economy. Church steeples have been replaced with skyscrapers. So in a growing secular age, in a growing secular country, how will the church preserve the message of the cross? How will the church continue to point people to heaven in a hostile, secular culture? The American government wants to preserve the precious land, while Christians, we desire to preserve our precious message. We are stewards of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must strive to keep this message front and center of our lives, regardless of how people receive it. And our task of preserving and being good stewards of this gospel is really no different than the seven churches of Asia in the first century. They, like we, work to proclaim the glory of God in Christ in a secular and hostile nation. So as we think about our glorious Yet challenging task, let us never forget first of the God who works on our behalf. We're going to kind of look at this uh, 
chapter in, in really five headings. The first two are going to be longer, so fair warning. The next ones are going to be sh- shorter. You're going to be like, at the end of my sermon, he hasn't got to point three yet. Well, it's, coming, it's going to be a fast landing. First uh, point is the measuring of the church. The measuring of the church. Revelation 11 is one of the most controversial and widely debated chapters in all of John's uh, apocalypse. Uh, I'm not going to provide a ver- the various imper- interpretations of all the different texts, but really what I believe it to mean and what it means for us today. Go back with me in Revelation chapter 11, 1 and 2. It says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Remember, between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, there was this interlude. We looked at the the first half of it last week with, with John actually participating in the vision. This is a carryover where John is continuing to participate in that vision. Chapter 10 and 11 are are, are connected here. Um, John was given a measuring rod and was told to measure three things. The temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. As we've seen in kind of the last two chapters, there's kind of a a theological or Old Testament backdrop to help us understand. So if you're going to look at the theological or the Old Testament backdrop for for Revelation chapter 11, you have to study Ezekiel 40 through 48 and Zechariah chapter 4. We've already read Zechariah chapter 4 and uh, Ezekiel 40 to 48. It's a long chapter about how God measures different things in the temple. Now, in interpreting this text, there's pretty much two broad extremes. A very literal interpretation and a very more figurative interpretation. Uh, G.K. Beale, a scholar, writes this. He says, in Ezekiel, measuring secured both the inner and outer courts against the contamination of Israel's former abominations, namely unbelievers worshiping false gods in the sanctuary and priests participating in idol worship in the sanctuary. So I believe John is likely drawing on Ezekiel here to show that God's measuring is a promise of protection from spiritual danger. Now, I don't think it means a promise of protection from physical danger, and I'll get there uh, in a moment. Also, I don't think that John here is referring to the the literal temple of Jerusalem, the, the bricks and the mortar, but the New Testament temple, which is the people of God. When Jesus came and was born as a man, the Bible says that he literally tabernacled among us. He was our temple. So where do we find the presence of God? When Jesus was on earth, it was in the Lord Jesus Christ. His body was the temple. When Jesus Christ died and went to heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit. And when he sent his Holy Spirit, he sent it into our lives to, re- to make us into the temple of, of God. So we see it, the New Testament often refers to the church as the temple. So in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, it says, You yourself are God's temple. In 2 Corinthians 6, 16, it says, You are the temple of the living God. You can also look at Ephesians 2, 19-22, Hebrews 3, 6, and 1 Peter 2, 5. It's a very common theme in the New Testament that the church is the temple of God. That is where the presence of God dwells. So here, what I think John is doing is that John is referring to the whole church rather than a a subset of the church or even Jewish 
believers. For me, I think an interpretive key is that John does not only deal with measuring the temple or the altar, but the worshipers who, who meet there. He, he, he's not referring to the bricks and mortar of the temple, but the people of God. The altar is, is there to, to be measured to show that God's people are called to be living sacrifices for his namesake. Uh, Romans 12.1. So God's presence will protect his people. Now, this protection does not mean that he's going to spare us from harm or physical danger. We even saw that in Revelation chapter 6, verse 11, when it says that the full number of the martyrs have to be brought in. So this is the period of, of the great tribulation or towards the end when things are really difficult for believers. Many would think that the church would not be there. And I made my statement last week that I do think that, I hope I'm wrong, but I do believe that the church is actually going to be there during the tribulation. Uh, so I, I, I believe that the, the, the rapture is going to happen after the great tribulation. That helps me interpret this. Now, you may not agree with that, and that's fine, but we want to make sure that whatever we have our opinions, we're not bound by something that we've heard years ago, but we are bound by the text of, of the Scriptures. Now, we've already seen that the church will face persecution and conquer through the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. If you go back and study those, that there's that refrain at the end, to him who conquers, to him who conquers, to him who conquers. Conquer what? Conquer and holding on to Christ in the midst of persecution and trial. The church has always had to face persecution and trial in their lives. So what the church has always done, and we now will continue to do, is to knowing that God will carry us safely into his heavenly kingdom. So our primary goal is not to trust that God is going to spare us from physical harm. Many of us um, are going to deal with some very extreme health issues in our lives, whether that's cancer or disease. Those of you who have already faced that bitter pill of, 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 of death because of the disease of a fallen, fallen world. So I, I think that when we, when we look at this text, we have to know that whatever happens in our, in our earthly bodies, that, our, that God is going to take our earthly bodies and remake them into be like his heavenly body in, in heaven. I think it's the picture of what God, God is saying here. It doesn't matter what happens in your life, God will not forsake you or leave you. He will carry you safely into his heavenly kingdom. And really what I get that is, is really from verse 2 when it says that uh, John is told the holy city will be trampled for 42 months. Now most numbers, I believe, in Revelation are symbolic or, or figurative. Uh, so what is the significance of the 42 months? Well, the same number... 42 months is used in Revelation 13.5. It's the time allotted for the beast to exercise his authority over the earth. So 42 months is equivalent to that same other number you see there, 1,260 days. 42 months times 30, which is 30 days in a month, you get 1,260 days, which is the equivalent to three and a half years. Now that is kind of referenced to Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, when he says that the, the church... Um, or the, the, the people of God, Israel at that time, are going to face persecution from a time, a times, and a time and a half, which we think that would be three and a half years. Now, I don't think the number should be taken literally. I think it possibly could be. But I think it's more, it, it, more symbolic about the intense persecution when evil reigns. So if the number seven, which we've already looked at, is the number of perfection, where righteousness reigns, well, what is half the number seven? Three and a half. 
the time where wickedness reigns. The wicked will reign for a time and persecute the church. And yet God will keep his people. I mean, just consider Jesus' words to Peter in Luke 22, 31. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew that Peter was going to deny him three times. That he was going to fall away. But his faith would not fail because of the power of God. Jesus would not let Peter go. No one can snatch a believer out of his hand. The good work that God begins in us, he will carry out to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. For Philippians 1.6. Or maybe we want to think about the Apostle Paul. In his second letter to Timothy, uh, he's remembering about his first defense before the authorities. And he says, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The lion, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, Paul was a strong Christian and he was beheaded. Peter was a strong Christian. And he was crucified upside down. Stephen loved the Lord and he was stoned. All of them, even though their bodies perished, were kept until that day. Their earthly bodies may have wasted away, but God remade them and now they're in the presence of God for all eternity. The Lord Jesus Christ said himself, do not fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing to you. Friend, God will keep you. God will sustain you. And I think when oftentimes we look at this great tribulation and when God is going to, the, 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 the nations are going to be filled with wickedness and they're going to persecute the church, we want to say, well, God would never allow that to happen to a believer. He'll spare us from that. Well, I would just say history has proven the opposite. God allows things to happen in our lives to purify us, to strengthen us, and to remind us that he will keep us. That we will not trust in our, in our lives more than the glory and the hope of the gospel of, of Christ. That's what I think the measuring means. Is that God is going to measure, meaning that I, the, the church, what I measure, belong to me. And nothing can take it out of my hand. The second thing is not only the measuring of the church, but the message of the church. So if this church is facing persecution, uh, she must continue her role in proclaiming the, the, the message of the kingdom. Uh, so look, look, look at me, 11, Revelation 11, 3 through 6. God's word says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, if you're just opening your Bible and you don't have a whole lot of background knowledge and no commentaries and no, no study Bibles, you, you read that and you go, huh? 
What's really happening here? That's really oftentimes when you read Revelation. If you don't understand the background of the Old Testament and, and, and study helps, who people may have studied to it deeper than, than even, uh, even a pastor can in the time that we have, it can be confusing. But here, I think what we see here is um, something that, that could be easily debated. Right? Who are these two witnesses? As I said before, there's kind of two broad camps of who these witnesses are. Either they're literal end-time individuals, or they're symbolic figures. Kind of like the two broad ends of the spectrum. The, there are biblical reasons for both, so you can make, make your opinions and, and interpretations on, on your own, but I believe these two witnesses represent the whole church symbolically, figuratively, for five reasons. So I'm going to give you these, these reasons. Um, first, the entire church is called to exercise her prophetic ministry. We were called at the end of Luke's gospel to proclaim the, the uh, proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sin to all nation, nations. Uh, the message of repentance can be seen in the two witnesses. They were clothed in sackcloth as a sign of mourning over their sin. The message of the church has always been repentance. Since Jesus first uttered his words and began his earthly ministry in Mark 1, 14, says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. If you are here today and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, uh, we would be remiss and we would be sinning against the Lord if we did not call you to repentance. Uh, there is no hope for you outside of, of Christ. As you'll see later in this chapter, only those who know Christ will experience a blessed resurrection. Now, we will all experience resurrection, but only those who know Christ will be blessed in it. Secondly, the two witnesses were necessary in the Old Testament in rightly judging against offense. So I think that he says there's two witnesses here because the church is rightly uh, judging the nations. The two witnesses of the church have been granted God's authority to validate and announce his judgment on the world. Third, the reference of the two olive trees and the two lampstands from Zechariah 4. Both Zechariah and, and Joshua were called olive trees, representing the twofold function of God's people in Exodus 19, where there, where there would be a nation of kingdom, a kingdom of priests. So John describes the church already in the book of Revelation. Because remember, when you're going to interpret, this is part of my, my thinking, if I'm going to interpret Revelation, I have to interpret Revelation by Revelation. And, and John already is making a point that the, the church is called a kingdom of priests emphasizing that all believers are both priests and kings. Revelation 1, 6, 5, 10, and Revelation 26. It also appears that there's really no distinction uh, between the, the two olive trees and the two lampstands in, in Revelation 11:4. Look what it says again. It says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Both are called olive trees and both are called lampstands, uh, rather than being one, then the other one being the other. Fourth, uh, the olive tree and the lampstands are also corporate in nature, as they symbolize how the church is filled with the Holy Spirit. That's that great passage that, that, that John read in Zechariah chapter 4. It says that we are, um, that olive tree is a, is a sign and a symbol of the Holy Spirit, that, that we do our ministry not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of the Lord. We are called to be his witnesses in the power of the Spirit. That's really the whole theme of the book of Acts. 
So in Acts chapter 1-8, it says that you were called to be my witnesses, and then it traces out through the rest of that book how we are witnesses on to God by the power of the Spirit. Uh, Bill Mounts aptly writes, he says, By these two metaphors, John is emphasizing a truth concerning the church that has always been true, but is especially appropriate in time of persecution, that the power and the authority for effective witness lie in the Spirit of God. So when we witness unto Christ, when we prophesy for his name, it's not in our power and our eloquence, but no, it's by the Spirit of God. Fifth, and finally, I think the picture of the rest of this text is the beast wages war against and the, the witnesses and kills them. We see that here in a second. It appears in the text that it is, it is far more than merely two bodies, but a great multitude of Christians. The, the celebration of the, of the wicked for their victory over the whole church makes more sense than just celebrating the victory over two individuals. Now, I think you can... You can that's, that's what my interpretation is, and I, I, I would hold to it. But even if you think these are two literal figures, a lot of the same themes that we can pull from uh, these passages can be similar. As we go on to the language of verses 4, 5, and 6, giving these two witnesses or the church the power to speak with fire from their mouth and to shut the sky to have power over the waters and I think this is also symbolic. You know, we think that Jesus had a sword from his mouth, and that's more of a, of a picture of, of who he was, thinking back to the, the image of the Lord Jesus in Revelation chapter chapter 1. Now, if you look at the Old Testament parallels here, verses 5 and 6, it seems to be clearly referring to Elijah and Moses. Now, many would say that these two witnesses, if you do believe that they are literal beings, that they would both be Moses and, and Elijah. I, I think that they are representative, right, of Moses and Elijah in terms of the role of the church. Jeremiah 5.14 says, Therefore says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my, my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. So throughout, after Jeremiah's ministry, what they would use, they would use that verse in Jeremiah to say as a, as a pronouncement of judgment against the nations. So the prophetic ministries of Elijah and Moses are in view in here, serving as, the, as a forerunner for the ministry of the church. So what is the ministry of the church? Both here and for us today. We are called to proclaim the message of salvation and judgment in Christ, not by might, but by the Spirit of the Lord. So how are we fulfilling our role? Are we proclaiming salvation and judgment? Now, it is easy to preach. You can be saved through Christ. Isn't that easy? You can be saved through Jesus Christ. You come to Christ and He can save you. It's a lot harder to pronounce the message of judgment, isn't it? But if you repent, or if you don't repent, if you don't trust in Christ, there will be judgment, a fire, and a literal eternal hell for all eternity. It's a harder message to, to share. Salvation always comes through judgment. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Jesus was judged. He took God's wrath so we could be saved. Our very salvation is because another was judged for us. 
The cross is a picture of our salvation, but it's also a picture of God's hatred towards sin and all those who don't trust in Christ. God will save the righteous, and he will judge the wicked. The cross is just a picture of that. So church, when you share Christ, do you talk about the judgment that is to come? Or are you shrinking back from teaching the whole counsel of God's word? I think too many Christians apologize for God's judgment against sin. We must not apologize, but continue as his light to the world, proclaiming salvation in Christ and judgment without him. So, friend, have you trusted yet in Christ? Do not delay. The beauty of our God is he desires, he desires to save us. He wants to give you himself. Think about this. The God of the universe wants to give you himself. But you must turn. You must turn from trusting in yourself to trusting in Christ for salvation. Reject your idols and run to Jesus. Third point, the massacre of the church. The massacre of the church. The wrath of the beast will come upon the church. He will unleash death and destruction on the saints. Look at verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and the tribes and the languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Jesus promises the world will hate his people. It hated him, it will hate us. We are the aroma of death to those who are perishing. The church is needing to remember that the world will never accept us if we hold true to Christ. This is why it says that this is why the the, the, the world celebrated when the, the saints perished, giving each other's presence because of the, the nagging reminder that the church gives on people's consciences. The church completes her testimony, she finishes her proclamation, and then she is destroyed. Those who dwell on the earth appear to have victory. They are killed and their bodies are not buried as a sign of great uh, disrespect this happens in the great city that is in Sodom and Egypt. It says that this is where the city where the Lord was crucified. Many take that to be uh, Jerusalem, which is very valid. Uh, I think in, in the book, the great city, uh, in, in Revelation, the great city is Rome. So how do, you, how, do you, how do you mold these two together? I like what one scholar says. He says that the great city is every city and no city. It is civilized man in organized community. Spiritually... It is Sodom and Egypt. Sodom refers to the depth of moral degradation, and Egypt is a symbol of oppression and slavery. The great city in, in which the martyred church lies dead is the world under the wicked and oppressive sway of the Antichrist. The great city is the city of man that stands opposed to the city of God, to borrow Augustine's, Augustine's language. I think this is just to be a reminder of us all that we should not seek the praise of the world. 
You know, about 40 years ago, Christians changed from being called um, fundamentalists to be called evangelicals. Uh, fundamentalists seemed a, a little harsh. So evangelical kind of, the word kind of birthed on the scene to, to prioritize our love for the gospel. But I think we, we may want to go back to that old word. I think the reality is, what, what, is, what does it mean to be a fundamentalist? To be a fundamentalist means that you hold to the fundamentals of the faith. We believe in what the church has always believed, that without Jesus you will not go to heaven. We believe that God hates sin. We believe in biblical marriage and God's view of sexuality. If we hold to the fundamentals of the faith, the world will hate us. See, that what we want, because we don't really understand the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ is that we want the world to love us. We want to present ourselves in such a way that the world will accept us. But if you hold to the doctrines of the Bible, they will reject you. We see that in this passage. Let us just embrace who we are in Christ. When someone asks us a question, let us just be truthful for what it says in God's word. The world will hate us and eventually take our lives and they will celebrate our demise until, point four, the resurrection of the church. The church will rise from the dead. The church will face physical harm and experience the harsh treatment this world has to offer. And Jesus was put to death. Paul and Peter and Stephen were put to death. And friends, there may be some of us here who are put to death. And yet, we will rise. Eleven. Eleven. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. At that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of, to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. God breathed life into these bodies and they, 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 they were raised from the dead. God's breath always brings life. This is the, the final fulfillment of Ezekiel 37, the, the valley of, of dry bones where God breathed life into the dry bones and they, they arise. Christians will always, we must always interpret this life based on the resurrection. There is a future promise of hope that is as sure as the rising of the sun. A great earthquake will come in those days and kill many in the city. And it said that 7,000 people were killed. Now, if seven times 1,000, that, that full number is to be taken literally, 7,000 taken figuratively, it's the whole number of those who oppose the Lord. And even there, not all will perish. What does the text say? There are some, those who are who are left, the rest, who understand their place against God, and in terror turn to Him. So when I, when I read that they gave glory to God, the God of heaven, I think that's self-ethic. They gave glory to the God of heaven and trusted Him as Savior and Lord. God's wrath will come on those who do not repent. But His kindness and His patience is extended to all of us. Today, God is extending that kindness and that patience to us. Turn to Him again and live. 
So in the face of all our trials, all our failing health, all our broken lives, all our sinful disobedience, all our relational strife, all our persecutions, all our insults, we must remember that, our great, that, that great is our reward in heaven. God has promised us a resurrection. We never define success apart from the resurrection of the Lord Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones reminds us this way. There is a resurrection after death. Let this never be forgotten. The life that we live here in the flesh is not all. The trumpet shall one day sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. All that are in the grave shall hear Christ's voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. This is one of the great foundational truths of the Christian religion. Let us cling to it firmly and never let it go. Lastly, the reign of the church. As we see here in verse 15, the, the, the seventh trumpet finally sounds and God fully and finally vindicates his people. Let our hearts rejoice in the victory of Christ and give thanks to the Lord God Almighty who is and who was and who will reward his saints both great and small. Let me finish this chapter. Hear God's word. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become in the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your saints, the prophets and saints, servants, your the prophets and saints, and to those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Beloved, very simply, the nations will rage. God's wrath will come. The saints will be rewarded with the reign of Christ. So let us live every day with an eye on that day when the kingdom of the, of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the power of the gospel that saves us. God, I pray that you would would sustain and strengthen your church even as they face intense persecution. That our final hope is not in these earthly bodies, but it's in the glorious body you have prepared for us. Let us not fear the world. Let us not fear those who can who take our jobs, who can take our resources, God, who can even take our lives. But let us fear you, O oh God. For when we breathe our last, God, we know that you will breathe life into us again and you will welcome us safely into your eternal kingdom. So, oh God, we long for that day when the kingdom of this world will be the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.